so you've actually heard it twice. And uh, we will continue to sing that. It's a beautiful song, beautiful truth. We want to be um, mindful of that as we sing the truth of uh, the songs that we sing. We want to be mindful of those truths and have hearts submitted to those truths, not just sing the words, but trusting in the providence of our God. He always does that which is right. And so it's a great reminder as well, no matter what the circumstance may be that we face, God is right. We can take great comfort in that. I do. I take great comfort in that. No matter what happens, God is right. And whatever we think about it really doesn't matter. God is still right. <laughs> so it's just what it is. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful God doesn't listen or go to the counsel of men, but he is God. So, so it is. Look with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 is where we'll begin our reading. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. As I've told you, as I mentioned last week as we began our study of this particular uh, portion of the passage, I mean, we've been in this section for some time now, beginning in, however, in verse uh, 18, we saw and uh, where Paul is writing concerning the warning of those who are enemies of the cross. And so he does so, and it's interesting because I showed you last week, verses 18 and 19 specifically are contrasted with verses 20 and 21 or vice versa, in that Paul is writing and saying that they are the enemies of the cross, and he's already expounded what it is to be a genuine, genuine follower of Christ and forsaking all things, anything that we would cling to or, or hold to as though we could present this unto God as our righteousness. Again, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives that impressive resume of all that he was, and if any man could boast in the flesh, he says, surely I can more than any other man. But yet he says, However, at the same time, I recognize that all of this means nothing and I am forsaking all of this that I would have clung to at one point in my life as though this is righteousness that I can present to God. He says, I I count all things but loss, all things but refuse, that I may know, that I may win Christ, that I might know him and all who he is and all that he has done. And so here we see that same contrast being made in reality because we see in verses 19 and uh, I'm sorry, verses 20 and 21, where again he is speaking about our conversation is in heaven. Our focus is eternal, whereas those who are the enemies of the cross, it's not the case. And so he's making this distinction between these two groups of people, if you will, those who are uh, enemies or those who are uh, the family of God or born of God. And so we're going to again look at the uh, further what Paul stated in verse 19 concerning these who are the enemies of the cross this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, we Thank you for the privilege it is to open the Word of God, and we pray that we might have ears that will be attentive, hearts that will receive, and eyes open to see the revealed Christ and to recognize as well the wonderful, glorious salvation that we have received, this redemptive work that you've accomplished, Lord, though we are undeserving and though we are uh, we are, we're under condemnation, but yet, Lord, you have delivered us, you have called us, sanctified us to yourself, 
and removed us from the path of destruction. And Lord, we thank you for uh, this grace that is ours in Jesus. And I pray as we open the Word of God this morning, may we have discerning hearts and minds, and may you as well, Lord, uh, help us to faithfully declare and proclaim the truth of the revealed Christ from your Word this morning. May we have uh, not be distracted by all that may be going around about us and, and in the world today and even in our own lives. But Father, may we, may we intentionally, purposefully uh, set aside this time as we have, but may we do so while focusing on the truth of what you have done and who you are as you've revealed this in your word. And so Father, may you work your, your, your uh, providential working and design within each of our hearts and lives as the Spirit of God uses your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began, as I mentioned, our examination of not only Paul's warning concerning the many enemies of the cross, but also Paul's grief as demonstrated by his weeping regarding those who remain indifferent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is important that we consider the connection between the thesis statement of this epistle with Paul's expression of grief over those who were the enemies of the cross. And I want to, again, point your attention to chapter 1, Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. Let me read these again to you. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent. This is the thesis of his entire epistle mentioned right here in verse 10, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So the connection between the thesis statement that you may prove things that are excellent and approving things that are excellent again means that you are proving that which is superior. But in order to recognize, as I've said many times to you, in order for us to acknowledge or recognize something as inferior, we must first understand and see that there is something superior to that which is inferior. Else we will think that which is inferior is really at the, at the greatest height of what it may be, rather than recognizing there's something that surpasses that. And so concerning Paul's statement here, he says that you may prove things that are excellent. Of course, he is saying to acknowledge and live in the truth of those things which are superior, contrasted by that which is inferior. And so while Paul is emphasizing the excellency or the excellence or superiority of knowing and growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, as he further explains in chapter 3, There remained many who were enemies of the cross, Paul declares, which grieved Paul to the core of his being. And here's the connection. There's definitely a relation between Paul's thesis statement and his expression of grief in verse 18 for those who remained apathetic regarding the cross of Jesus. The more Paul grew in his understanding and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater was his desire for others to know Jesus as did he. So these two, there's a correlation here between these two truths. Paul is saying, oh, that I may know him, but in all of this desire to know Christ, the more Paul grew in the knowledge of Christ, the more grief that he experienced or burden he experienced for those who did not know Christ. The more that Paul grew and matured, the more so he was burdened and concerned concerning those who were indifferent towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one thing for us to declare or to think that we have reached some level of spiritual maturity, but the reality of that spiritual maturity will be evidenced by the lives which we live, not in self-righteousness, but in humility and in acknowledgement again that the only reason that we are not today an enemy of the cross is because of the divine intervention of God and the grace of God through the provision of Jesus Christ. 
that he has, he has interrupted our, our path of destruction and he has brought us to saving faith in the person of Christ. This is the only reason that you or I could stand up today and say we embrace the cross rather than we despise the cross of the Lord Jesus. It's only because of this work that God has done. So we look at the enemies of the cross, and within verse 18, just in review this morning, concerning these enemies of the, Paul, uh, of the cross, Paul wrote, verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Last week I pointed out three things for us to consider concerning Paul's statement in verse 18, which I want to briefly review. First, the number of those who are the enemies of the cross is great. Notice what Paul says, for many walk. This is a, 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 a vast number. The scriptures clearly reveal, and we went through many passages last week to help us to understand this truth consistently throughout the God's Word, including Old Testament passages and New Testament passages. That, and it's that the number of those who are the enemies of the cross is, is great for many walk. And the scriptures clearly reveal this truth that the, those who reject God and truth make up the majority of mankind. Believers have always been in the minority. It's always been that way. It always will be that way until the destruction of the world and the wicked. Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Verse 14, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. Here you have many and few. Second, Paul frequently warned of such enemies of the cross. He says, for many of whom I have told you often. Paul continually warned against the enemies of the cross due to the fact that, that there were those who opposed the gospel and these people were growing in number. Just as the church grew and multiplied, so also those who opposed the, the gospel, once the gospel came into the world, once the Spirit of God birthed the church, and now the propagation of the gospel has begun, there were those who obviously became more so adamantly opposed to Christ and opposed to the gospel. Third, Paul's concern over the enemies of the cross was tremendous. He said, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul despised the perverting of the gospel of Jesus Christ more so than probably any other man you read in the Scriptures apart from Christ himself. And yet, he also at the same time felt tremendous sorrow and anguish for those who rejected the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must never forget that while there are those who blatantly are anti-Christ and those who are blatantly the enemies of the cross, there was a time in which every one of us were also in the same spiritual blindness and equally spiritually destitute and dead. Paul's desire for others to come to faith in Christ was superseded only by his own desire to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Yet, the irony is this. It was the same desire to grow in the knowledge of Christ, personally, that produced a greater burden for others who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul desired and grew in Christ, you know what came with that? corresponding with that would have been the actual burden and desire to see others come to faith. Because the more he sees Christ in the heart and the truth of what Christ has done, the more so he desires for others to come to the knowledge, saving faith in Jesus Christ. Paul not only expressed his grief concerning those who were enemies of the cross, but he also warned the Philippian believers by way of providing a very clear description of those who were enemies of the cross. 
In other words, just as Paul had detailed what it was to be a genuine follower of Christ, to know Christ, forsaking all things that I would count as righteousness, now I see it as nothing but refuse, but garbage, that I may be not in my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness of God, which is by faith, through the faithfulness of Jesus. So in in understanding this, Paul detailed this, that this is what a genuine believer in Jesus is. Yet at the same time, he details the marks of those who remain the enemies of the cross. Look at verse 19. Whose end is destruction, talking about the enemies of the cross, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, and who mind earthly things. Within verse 19, Paul points out four specific details which mark those who are the enemies of the cross. This morning, we will spend our time considering the significance of each of these four details. Statements which describe the enemies of the cross as mentioned by Paul in verses 18 and 19. He shows us his grief. He shows us the reality that there are many. And then he says, I grieve over this, but yet I've warned you often of these who are enemies of the cross. And then in verse 19, he provides these details. Number one, we first must acknowledge that the enemies of the cross are marked by their pursuit of destruction. Look at verse 19, the first part of the verse. Whose end is destruction? Now, we must understand that the end of destruction, or the destructive end, is the direct result of a life lived pursuing the path of destruction. Now, I don't believe for one moment that any man who has any understanding at all concerning the condemnation he is under concerning the eternal wrath of God being poured out upon him for an eternity would run knowingly to that end destruction. Men are spiritually blind. They are ignorant. They don't understand. They do not have spiritual discernment. And because of this, they are on the path of destruction. Jesus said again, wide is the gate. Remember, broad is the way. Wide is the gate that leadeth to destruction and many there be that go in there at. And, and what he's saying is that this path of destruction is a broad path. It is a wide gate. It takes many within it. And so, so many people are living lives of destruction. They are following after destruction. You say, well, wait a minute, but you just said that they don't, if they understood what they were, that what their end was, then they biblically truly understood, then they would not be pursuing that. And, and I still believe that to be true. The problem is they are blind and cannot see, do not understand, have no spiritual discernment. No matter what you may say to them, no matter how much they may hear the gospel, the point is their heart will remain indifferent. They are enemies of the cross. And they do not receive at all Christ or his finished work. And therefore, they are on this path to destruction. But notice, within their own lives, there is nothing that would indicate by large that these individuals desire any change in their entire lives or even change of direction. So they really are pursuing after destruction, ignorantly, willingly pursuing after destruction. After, As a matter of fact, I would say willingly, ignorantly, and in some cases arrogantly, in the path of destruction and pursuing that. As I mentioned last week, Jesus stated as much when referring to the destruction of many in Matthew's gospel record, which we read a moment ago, Matthew 7, 13. Why does the gate... And broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Regardless of the claims of many today, or the apparent disinterest concerning Jesus and the gospel, the truth remains that there is no neutrality regarding the cross of Christ. There is no neutral position one can take concerning the gospel. In other words, one is either friend 
or foe to the cross. One is either the friend of Christ or one is the enemy of Christ. But there is no neutral ground. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The unregenerate man cannot simply dismiss the gospel, but he will disregard the cross of Jesus as foolishness, which ironically is a response to the gospel. Nonetheless, it is through the cross of Jesus that God turns those who are the enemies of the cross to the friends of the cross by reconciling, by removing that hostility that existed between us and himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So we must recognize that the enemies of the cross are marked by their pursuit of destruction. Their end is destruction, but their whole life is committed to a path of destruction, to living in this destructive manner. Then number two, Paul says in verse 19, whose God is their belly, the enemies of the cross are marked by their worship and service to themselves. When he says whose God is their belly, the mention of their belly is a reference to the appetite of those of which Paul writes. These are men who live according to their appetites. They are governed only by their own selfish and sinful desires, and they act according and unto those sinful and selfish lusts. Both Jude and Peter also warned against such men. In Jude verses 4 and 16, he says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of, of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And again, that word lasciviousness is licentiousness, which is referring to a license to sin or freedom to sin. So they're saying God's grace is a provision for us to continue sinning. Not a provision for our sin, but a provision for us to continue to sin. And he goes on and explains that by doing so, they are denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So for those who would pervert the grace of God, he's saying these men are perverting the grace of God, and in doing so, they are denying the very Lord and God and Savior. Verse 16, he goes on to say, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust. These are still the men of verse 4. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. So in other words, these are men who are attempting to pervert God's grace and cause other people to follow after their pernicious ways, follow after their, their lawlessness, if you will, with an attempt to say, you can sin, and they use swelling words, and they have great audience, and men respect or revere them or, have, or, or are drawn to them, and they use, even as we'll see in a moment, the very lust of the flesh, alluring to the flesh to get others to follow their, their path, which is ultimately destruction. 2 Peter 2, 1, and then verses 18 and 19, Peter writes a parallel passage, and he says, But there were false prophets who also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Verses 18 and 19. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty... 
They themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is, is he brought in bondage. Not only do these men serve their own appetites, but they also allure others through the lust of the flesh to do the same. I, on, we've been going through Jude for several months now on Wednesday evenings and, and bringing Jude and, and Second Peter up as we have throughout our study of Jude. It's interesting that you don't have to look very far. I'll just remind you, you don't have to look very far to see exactly what Jude is talking about, but it takes place in, in extreme examples and it also takes place in examples that are much more hidden or disguised. In other words, there are many people who are by their own selfish lust, they serve themselves and their own benefit, and yet they, they attempt and they do so successfully to deceive many people who to follow in their own selfish ways and, and for their own benefit. Let me just say this to you, and I don't want to get off on this, but I do want to mention this because I believe it's important for you to understand. The so-called prosperity gospel obviously is heretical, and, and it, it, it can even be blasphemous, but the so-called prosperity gospel is focused and centered and based and founded upon greed. The men who proclaim such are greedy, wanting what you have, and the people who give are greedy, wanting something. And that's the reason they do so. It's, it's all this circle of greed that exists. And so there's a great example here of what the Scriptures are saying in that, but it's not limited to that, that nonsense alone. So it's important that we take notice that both Jude and Peter state that these men deny the Lord. Both of them say this here. And by denying the Lord Jesus, they are just declaring themselves to be enemies of the cross of Jesus. Whether they say that, they're not going to say that, but they are the enemies of the cross. Paul stated in Romans 12.1 that we are to present our bodies living sacrifice unto God, and this is our reasonable service. And the term reasonable service, it means genuine worship. Men serve that which they worship. In other words, man's worship is demonstrated in that which he serves. Men will only serve that which they believe is worthy of their time, of their effort, and of their lives. Paul further warned and expounded on such men who serve themselves in his letter to the believers in Rome, Romans 16, 17, and 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Here in Romans, Paul says exactly what we have read here in both Peter, Jude, and Philippians. Men will either serve Jesus or serve their own selfish and sinful appetite. Men will only serve Jesus when they recognize him to be superior than themselves and superior than their desires. Do you know why? Watch this. Again, Paul, in this whole letter of Philippians, he is writing concerning the superiority of Jesus Christ and the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. And yet, here we understand by all that is being taught here how these men serve their own bellies. Well, the only way someone would serve their own selfish appetites and their own selfish sinful desires is because they view themselves superior to Jesus. Because they will serve only that which they deem worthy to serve. They will worship only that which they deem worthy of their time, of their effort, of their labor, of their energy, of their lives. 
And so when these men serve their own bellies, what they're saying is they, it's not only, oh, well, they, they're just greedy or they just want... Uh, no, they are saying, Jesus is not superior. I am superior. Then third, Paul says the enemies of the cross are marked by boasting in their wickedness, he says, and whose glory is in their shame. The enemies of the cross not only live in unrighteousness, but they boast in their sin. While there are those who boast of their wickedness outright and sinful actions outright, there are others who pride themselves in their self-righteousness, which is just as wicked as any immoral act which man can commit. These are those of which both Jude and Peter wrote. Among a list of descriptive terms and examples in describing those men who pervert God's grace into a license or freedom to sin, Jude included the following illustration in Jude verse 13. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Peter expounded on such men in 2 Peter 2.19 when he said, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage, as we read just a moment ago. So these are men who boast in their own self-righteous acts as though God will be impressed and accept man's work as sufficient for his redemption. Paul definitively spoke against such sinful and futile thoughts of men when he stated in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, yes, doubtless, And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, or the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So what Paul is saying again in that passage, so it it seems as though people don't connect the dots here. Again, after just providing this impressive resume of all he was, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and yet then he immediately goes into, he says, if anyone can boast, I can boast. But then he says, I understand all of this is inferior. It's not only inferior, it is garbage, it is refuse. Because none of this provides me righteousness. But it is Christ who is superior. It is the righteousness of Jesus that is superior. So I count all other things at loss that I might know Christ be found in him. But yet these enemies of the cross, they boast in their own shame. What is the shame? It is their very actions. You say, well, wait a minute. But what about those who are religious? That's shameful. What about those who are attempting to do good works? Those are shameful apart from Jesus Christ because every man who does what man, humanity, deems as good apart from the working of God within man is all of his own self-righteousness. And it is wicked before God. And by the way, one who attempts to live up and measure up to the standard of God's holiness is an enemy of the cross. The cross is God's provision for us to not have to attempt to measure up because we never could to begin with. And so it's through the cross that we are made righteous, and yet men reject this provision of God, having a different heart and a different mind and heart towards the gospel. They are enemies of the cross by virtue of the fact that not they curse God or not that they stand up and shake their fist at God. No, in their in their futile attempt 
to measure up to some standard of righteousness. They are self-declaring, I'm an enemy of the cross. I reject God's provision because my provision will be sufficient. We boast in the cross. We boast in the person and sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. With Paul, may we confess, as he says in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Paul says, God forbid that I would glory in anything outside of Christ. What do I have to claim? Nothing except Jesus. Number four. Let let me stop here for a moment. Let me interject something here. While men again attempt to live up to righteousness, while men attempt to to work some some collection of righteousness that one day they they can offer up to God, you notice people will make statements like this all so often. They'll make statements like this and say things such as, you know, do you know Christ? Well, I, I believe in Jesus. Well, have you ever been born again? You may talk to me, witnessing them or just conversing with them. And then, you know, well, are, are, you, are, you, are you confident in, in your eternal abode? Where you will go when you die because there's an eternity that waits? And, and they'll say, well, you know, I hope. I hope that, I hope God will take me in. I hope God, listen. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we hope, but the hope is confidence. It's not some longing desire and wishful thinking. It is a confidence. My hope is Christ. So when I stand before God, God is not going to question me about what do you have to offer me. (laughs) But he sees Jesus who is already accepted, in whom the Father is satisfied in his work of redemption. Then number four, the enemies of the cross are marked by their misplaced focus on temporal things. Notice what Paul says in his last statement describing these enemies of the cross in this verse. Who mind earthly things. I believe this is one of the clearest pieces of evidence that testifies as to one being an actual enemy of the cross. Let me explain. While not every person will openly manifest a race to their destruction, while not every person will openly manifest a self-centered existence, though it's there, but it may not be just open and, and propagated as with others, not, although not every person will blatantly boast in and of their sin, here's what we must recognize All of those, every single person who is an enemy of the cross will be focused on the temporal. Everyone without exception. Although it is possible for men to possess a spiritual and or religious interest, men who do not possess a spiritual uh, spiritual life do not possess a focus on that which is eternal. I'm not saying someone who does not know Christ can't inquire of spiritual things or cannot even show spiritual interest or even quote-unquote eternal interest and talk about heaven or talk about condemnation or talk about the wrath of God. But I'm not just simply saying, oh, what one may bring up occasionally in a conversation. What we must understand is that those who are enemies of the cross are not going to have an eternal perspective. They can't possess that. 
All they have is the right here and the right now. And their lives will reflect that. And not only will their lives reflect that, but ultimately their very mouths will reflect that. Remember what Jesus said when he said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Though we cannot literally see within the intents and thoughts of the heart that the word of God should uh, he, he, he shreds through that, of course, but yet we cannot, we cannot see that. But here's what I can see. Here's what I can know. I can know the interest of your heart by what you say. I can know what overwhelms you by what you say. I can know that what dominates your conversation is what is going to be most dear and near to you. And those who do not have an eternal perspective are not going to be consumed with eternal truth. Though they may show an interest, though they may, they may discuss things from now and then, but their heart does not overflow with the goodness and the grace and the love and the mercy and the holiness of God. While those who do have an eternal perspective can't help but that flowing from them. It's not we try to stir up conversation. No, it's because within us is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and the redemption and salvation that God has provided in him. And it doesn't mean every word we say to every person is preaching to them. But it means that the the dominant conversation of our life, not only in what we say but how we live, is an eternally focused, intentional life and perspective. People can fake a lot of things. People can, can come to church services and people can come to fellowships and people can take part in ministries. People can do all sorts of things. But one thing you will not be able to do is successfully produce some genuine, eternal interest and desire and life that does not already exist. Paul clearly explained this in Romans 8 verses 5 through 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. There it is. Those who live in the flesh, not meaning within a body, talking about the sinful nature of this body. Those who follow in the sinful nature of their own flesh, you know what they're concerned with? Things of the flesh. But, again, a contrastive conjunction. On the other hand, they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That is an enemy of the cross. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It does not say they are in the flesh do not please God. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. As believers in Jesus Christ, those in whom God is reconciled by the cross of Christ... We have an eternal focus. An eternal focus does not mean that we only think of our eternity of bliss with the Lord once we die. In contrast to this common misconception, 
And eternal focus means that we are focused on God's eternal purpose as it is unfolding in time. Paul declared and demonstrated what this practically looks like within this life. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, 1. I'm sorry, 4, 17 through 5, 1. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1 goes on to say, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying, those who are following after Christ, we're not... We're not focused on how others treat us. We're not focused on how well we do in this world. We are focused on that which is eternal and how no matter what the situation may be in our lives, whether it's great suffering, whether it's to the point of even suffering unto death for the cause of Christ, he says we recognize that this life is temporal. It is but for a moment, and our focus is not on that. And it's not just one day I'll be with the Lord, though that is a glorious truth. Paul is saying that through all of this temporal existence, God is working an eternal weight of glory. All this is to His glory, and it's all His purpose unfolding in time. So as Paul explained in his epistle to the Corinthian church, while we have an absolute certainty of an eternity with the Lord to be focused on the eternal is possess the understanding that all things which we endure in this life, including suffering, is being used by God in the fulfillment of His eternal purpose. What's more one who lives in an an eternal perspective or with an eternal perspective, those who are focused on that which is eternal will live a life that manifests the eternal spirit of God dwelling with them. In Romans 8, 13 and 14, Paul goes on to say, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Paul clearly made this distinction between a life focused on the temporal and eternal in his epistle to the churches of Galatia. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and then 19 through 25, we read, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verses 19 through 25. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. What did I tell you all ago? Those who live with a fleshly temporal perspective, those who do not have the Spirit of God within them, are going to manifest the, the flesh because this is all they have. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Again, using grace as a means to sin. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you also, also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's, listen, absolute statement here, they that are Christ, those who belong to Jesus, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So Paul says, if the Spirit of God is in you, then walk accordingly. Again, I remind you of this truth. As we have received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk ye in Him. How do we receive Him? In humility, by faith, resting and trusting totally in Him. That's also how we are to live. 
The evidence is in. Listen, the truth of the matter is the evidence is already in concerning you and your life. The evidence is in. The verdict is clear. Every single one of us is either a friend or foe to the cross of Jesus Christ. The only question which remains is this. Are you a friend or foe? That's the question. The answer to this question is not provided by some claim that one may make, but is solidified by the evident focus of one's life, which is evidenced by the Spirit producing spiritual fruit within that life, as Paul claims in Galatians 5. We must be aware that while the Spirit lives within us, as Paul declared in Galatians chapter 5, the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, which of course means that the flesh, the sinful nature, continually attempts to claim ownership of that to which it has no rightful claim, which is our body. That's what is meant when it says the flesh lusteth against the spirit. The spirit, we are bought by God. Our, our body and spirit belong to him, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians. And yet in Galatians, he says the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so in this case, the, the flesh is coming up against the spirit. The simple nature, that is, is attempting to take control of a fleshly body of, to which it has no rightful claim. Because we've been bought with a price. So we must be aware that there's a continual attempt to claim ownership of that which the flesh has no rightful claim. And for this reason, we also must be mindful that maintaining an eternal focus is not a default setting within us. If it weren't for God's Spirit living within me, my focus would be totally on me. And there's times I still focus on me. Are you not the same? So this isn't a default setting. We are, we are fallen creatures that are sinful and cursed by sin. And this, this flesh in which we live is still sinful. So if this is not a default setting, though the Spirit dwells within us and His fruit will be born and manifest in our lives, it is not something to which this is the just what's going to happen because it's the way in which our focus is always eternal. No, we must maintain an eternal perspective, dying to self, dying to the flesh. Therefore, mortifying the deeds of the flesh and so on, as Paul mentioned. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says this, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Why would Paul make such a command? Well, first of all, the unbeliever cannot do this. There's nothing in him that desires eternal truth. But yet the believer is not only equipped to be able to do this, but is commanded and exhorted to do this, to set our affection. The enemies of the cross are known by their mindset. But might I say this to you? If the enemies of the cross are known by their mindset, as Paul so clearly describes in this verse, it is also equivalently true that the friends of the cross are also known by their mindset. If you are a friend of the cross because you've been redeemed and regenerated by the working of God's Spirit, that is not something you can hide. I've said this to you many times. Salvation in Jesus Christ, the redemption that we have seen, that we have received, is always personal. 
without exception. There's no group salvation. There's no uh, just you come and join a church and therefore now I'm a... No, you are personally redeemed. But hear me, though salvation is without exception personal, it is also without exception never private. It is public. So we who've come to faith in Christ, we can rejoice that we have been given this eternal spirit of God who therefore turns our attention and focus as we submit to him to eternal things and an eternal perspective while those who are not redeemed the unregenerate man cannot be focused on eternal things because all he has is the present here and now which is fleshly and temporal and he will manifest that So I simply conclude with this question to you this morning, which is not always the way in which I conclude our studies or sermons, but yet I ask this one question and we will pray, and this is one that you must answer, but be be cautious and let me warn you as well with this truth. You falsely answering this question does not in any way hide the evidence of the truth of the mindset that you possess. And here is the question. Are you friend? Or are you foe to the cross of Jesus? Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God and its truth. And how you've revealed to us the evidence that is so precious.